Chapter 12, You Don't Love Me Yet. Dealers aren't exactly the most customer service oriented of merchants. They take their sweet ass time, because what are you going to do? Something besides stand there and wait for them? For two hours, I had been trying to look as inconspicuous as possible while I waited at the usual place on First and Pike. The corner of First and Pike streets in Seattle is the only place I can think of where you look suspicious if you're not enthralled by obnoxiously loud fish peddlers throwing huge chunks of salmon at one another. If you looked like me, it was worse. The fact that this was a hot spot for the local narcotic trade was not lost on anyone. Not the police, not the merchants, and certainly not the least of my worries, my boss. Although he seemed willing enough to overlook my showing up for my shift a little tipsy, he would definitely frown upon this type of endeavor. My most frequently used meeting place with Jose was located very conveniently, and most dangerously, kitty-cornered to the Champ Arcade. But a downtown without drug activity is like a day without sunshine, right? Forgetting about the two hours the second I saw the little fucker, I thanked him profusely when he finally showed up. After the traditional open-palmed handshake-slash-cash transaction, we pretended to chat about sports or whatever the fuck people talk about. He casually scanned up and down the street for any authority figures, and then with a hearty farewell handshake, he slipped me a small nugget of black tar heroin in a tiny red balloon and made his way into the market. I pretended to thumb through a magazine at the corner newspaper stand for a minute before I left, in case anyone was watching. When I was sure I looked completely calm and relaxed, I took off running at a dead heat for home. My lungs were on fire and my heart pounded in my throat as I rushed up the hill on Denny. I've got to quit smoking, I remember thinking. These things are going to kill me. She was standing in front of the bathroom mirror putting on lipstick when I walked in the door. In the weeks since leaving the detox center, neither one of us could have been classified as a success story, but the abuse part of our collective substance abuse had been tempered considerably. How do I look, babe, she asked, smoothing the front of her dress with the palms of her hands, down her abdomen to the top of her thighs. It was a shimmery, tight red number with black fishnets. You look. I searched for the right words. Fuck. I look fuck, she asked, raising an eyebrow. I'd forgotten that we were going out that night. We were going to the Vogue to see Catbutt and Swallow. I had no idea it would be a dressy affair. I quickly rummaged through the closet looking for my one good black western shirt and my Merriam or Barium suit jacket. I changed and went to the bathroom to brush my teeth and run my fingers through my hair, but not before quietly slipping a syringe and a spoon into my back pocket. This was, I knew at the time, me lying to her. I had already made the promise that things would be different. There's a moment, early on in every junkie's using career, when a tiny ray of sanity shines into his psyche to tell him that he may, just may, have a problem here. I had had my moment, and after hours and hours of intense negotiations with myself, I'd come to what seemed to be a perfectly acceptable compromise, an oh-so-grandiose and foolproof solution. I would only do dope on the weekends. I swear I wasn't lying when I said it, it's just that here we were. I was not a stranger to being out of control. I actually enjoyed the indestructible feeling of it as it surged through my body. But this was different. My body acted on its own accord, calmly disinterested in my pleas for reason. I was genuinely touched by Carrie's gesture. 
She had gone out of her way to make this night special for some reason, but I didn't deserve it. I was simply going to do what I was going to do, and nobody could stop me. I turned on the faucet to cover the sound. I dropped a small piece of dope and a few drops of water in the spoon. I held my lighter under the spoon and watched the heroin dissolve, all the while repeating to myself, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I rolled up my sleeve. I'm not going to do this. I wrapped my belt around my bicep and tightened it. I'm not going to do this. I pushed on the plunger of the needle with my thumb. I'm not going to do this. I was merely a spectator now, systematically destroying this life, that girl, and whatever else came across my path. I no longer had a say in the matter. The analgesic bliss coursed through my system, doing its best to dismantle what was left of shame and regret. As the toothbrush hit the sides of my back molars and created its comforting locomotive cadence, I thought I had heard the sound of a violin. I stopped and spit equal parts blood and toothpaste foam into the sink. The sound was too loud to be the television, too beautiful to be coming from our shitty ghetto blaster. I walked out to our room with the toothbrush still hanging out of my mouth. She stood with her back to me. When she tossed her hair back to reach for some higher notes, I was mesmerized. Her dress so tight she stood pigeon-toed in those shiny black pumps the reading lamp next to the bed producing a halo that outlined her entire body. I didn't dare move for fear of disrupting the picture. The slightest noise might bring her back to this awful apartment, this selfish boyfriend, this situation void of grace and beauty. It might send the instrument back into its case and back into the bed where it had been gathering dust since we moved in. The last note vibrated into silence. I heard a car drive by our building. I heard her exhale through her nose. That was incredible. What was that called? I quietly asked from the doorway. I don't know, just made it up, she said, setting the violin back in its case. Well, it was beautiful. I avoided eye contact. Thank you very much, dollface, she said, reaching for a purple faux fur coat. Now let's get the fuck out of here. I need a drink. We walked arm in arm into the darkened club to cat calls and whistles. The doorman waved Carrie through, but I had to pay the cover, of course. He was not a fan of mine. He checked my ID every time I came into the place in hopes of one day being able to turn me away for forgetting it. Carrie waited for me as he gave my license the stink eye. We made our way to the bar. The usual, darling, she called out to the bartender. One can of Rainier with a straw so as not to fuck up your lipstick, he shouted over the crowd. Yes, please, and a shot of Bushmills for my handsome escort. Monty and his lovely wife Shauna were the proprietors and bartenders at the Vogue, which was just a couple of blocks from my work. It was quite convenient, considering that at midnight I was going to turn into a smut-selling pumpkin. They had live music on Tuesday nights, but most of the time it was a gothy dance club. The place was packed with scenesters and musicians. Whether they were being supportive or they were just bored was anyone's guess. It was a nascent cavalcade of stars. A few years' time would bring a lot of them platinum records and world tours. For now, though, they were pooling their change to buy cheap pitchers of shitty beer. Monty was lovely in his own right. Without a doubt, he was wearing the shortest miniskirt in the place and a matching brown leather halter top as if he had just walked off the screen of a Russ Meyer film. He leaned over the bar on his massive bodybuilder arms and gave Carrie's dress the once-over.
I could never pull that number off, he sighed. My shoulders are just too broad. He may have been the only cross-dresser in America who never got lip from anyone, ever. You wouldn't want to be seen getting your ass kicked by somebody wearing a miniskirt and go-go boots, now would you? The first shot of whiskey was still burning in my throat when Catbutt hit the stage. They looked like a gang of bikers had fucked a bunch of Dr. Seuss characters and forced their children to form a rock and roll band. They sounded like the MC5 had never learned to tune their instruments. Christ, it was unbearable. I turned my shot glass upside down on the bar and Monty replaced it with a full one. I pulled a $5 bill out of my wallet and he waved it off. There were a few perks to having a girlfriend who was an up-and-coming underground rock phenom. Carrie and I had a system worked out for shows and parties. She stuck close to me and I ran interference. She'd confided in only her closest friends about her memory loss and even then blamed the condition on her medication, not divulging anything about her shock treatments. That information was privy to only her father and me. To avoid an awkward situation, if someone approached us who she didn't recognize, she would lightly step on my toe. Jonathan Poneman, as I live and breathe, I announced with great fanfare. She would throw her arms around the subject in question, and another successful social interaction would be complete. Usually the music would be so loud that few words were necessary. Later, if circumstances and volume allowed, I would whisper a brief description in her ear so she could charm the unrecognized subject with her body repartee. He's one of the guys who runs the record company. You like him, I told her when I got the chance. I wondered if the day would ever come when she looked at my face with puzzlement, if I would ever have to roll over in bed some morning and reintroduce myself. I leaned on the bar and watched her hold court in the back of the room, sipping beer through her straw and gesturing wildly with her hands. She spun around several times showing off her dress, striking mock supermodel poses for her cohorts. My friend Lenny came up and handed me a shot of whiskey and yelled something made inaudible in the sonic stench of the band. What? I said happy anniversary, asshole. I looked over at Carrie who winked and raised her drink to me. Odds were that this was just a ploy to get free drinks and an excuse to get all dolled up, but we had broken up and gotten back together so many times you'd need an abacus to keep track so I suppose it could have been. Either way, the drinks were flowing, and she was smiling, so I was pleased. I closed my eyes and tossed back the whiskey. When I shook it off and opened them again, Kelly Thompson was standing in front of me with two shot glasses in her hands and a cigarette in her lips. Shit. You got a light killer, she asked, running her index finger down the lapel of my jacket. I struck a match and lit her Marlboro. I understand we're celebrating, she shouted, handing me one of the shots. Yeah, something like that. Well, congratulations. We touched glasses and knocked them back. She kissed me on the lips and disappeared into the crowd. That could have gone much, much worse, I thought to myself, wiping her lipstick from the corner of my mouth. I checked my watch, quarter to twelve. I walked over to Carrie's gang and interrupted her dissertation by kissing her goodbye and sticking a twenty-dollar bill in her bra strap. What's that for, she asked. Camp fair, baby. She pulled me in for another kiss and I strolled out the door, hammered and ready for another night's work.